0: One to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Last week as we began the message we looked at the fact that Jesus in chapter 13 of Matthew started using these short uh, fictional stories called parables and he he used them to teach both his disciples and also the crowds that had gathered there to hear him, to listen to him. And we, we saw that the purpose of him teaching this way in these parables was both to reveal the truth to those who believed in him, and to conceal the truth from those who did not believe. And the central truth, and the main point that Jesus is seeking to reveal here to his disciples, is to uh, explain and to describe the kingdom of heaven. And throughout chapter thirteen, Jesus teaches one parable right after the next about the kingdom of heaven. In the parable of the soils, we we learn that people will respond differently to the message of of the kingdom based on the condition of their hearts. In the parable of the weeds, we learn that both believers and non-believers will exist together in this inaugurated kingdom until the judgment. In the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven, we learn that the kingdom will grow and will spread in it, and it will not be contained or sectioned off. It'll permeate through everything. And last week in the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value, we learned that the kingdom is supremely valuable, and it is worth forsaking everything else to obtain it. That brings us this morning then to verse 47. And the parable of the net. Please look with me there in verse 47 and follow along as, as I read through this. Jesus said, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it, drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so this morning as we look at these verses in this parable, we want to look at two main points of the parable. First of all, we see that the kingdom of heaven gathers Together, it gathers. Look at the illustration here from the parable in verse 47. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and then gathered fish of every kind. And this is a very interesting picture. The the word used for net in this verse refers to a very specific kind of net. Now, for me personally, I don't know about you, but for me, probably because I grew up in... Uh, Children's church and you know, VBS and all that kind of stuff I have those illustrations in my mind. What I picture is a is dude standing on the boat of a de- on the deck of a boat with like throwing like a circular net out and then pulling it back in and, and gathering the fish that way. Well, there's a word that's used for that kind of net, but it's not the word that's used in this verse. The word used in this verse means very specifically a dragnet or a trawling net. And so this net was huge. Some of them would be up to, uh, cover as an area as large as half a mile. And what they would do is they, they would basically uh, tie the net between two boats and, and stretch and pull it tight, and then they would go in the same direction. And as the boats went in the same direction, everything that was in front of the net would get caught up in the net, and it, it, they would gather it together that way. So you can just imagine what this net would pick up. You know, it, it, As it picked up the fish, it would pick up large fish and small fish and edible fish and inedible fish and, and every kind of fish that would have been in the Sea of Galilee. If it was in front of the net, as the net was going through, it would be gathered into it. So we see here, the net here does not differentiate. The net does not distinguish one kind of fish from the other. That must be done later. So everything's gathered together, and Jesus says the same is true with the kingdom of heaven. And um, one of the important points that we really need to clarify this morning is going to help us understand what Jesus is saying uh, about the kingdom of heaven is when it occurs. Okay, when does this kingdom come about? When does it start? When do we when do we expect this kingdom to come? Something that we notice throughout the teaching of Jesus as we read and see him speaking of this kingdom is that it's really kind of ambiguous when you look at at what he says there There are times when Jesus speaks of the kingdom as though it were here. It was a present reality, now. And then there are times when Jesus speaks as if the kingdom were in the future. And it's yet to come. And so this this leads us then to adopt this understanding about the kingdom of heaven that is already, but not yet. So in one sense, the kingdom is already here. It's a present reality. In another sense, the kingdom is not yet here. It, we await its arrival. And so as it's, as it's now here, presently, in the coming of Jesus into the world, the kingdom began. And, and theologians, when they talk about this, they refer to it as the inaugurated kingdom. So if you ever see that, That term, this is what it means. That the coming of Jesus brought about this current age or this current period of time in history. So Jesus now reigns as king in the hearts of those who are his. So, in that sense, the kingdom is here. But at the same time, the kingdom is not in its full and final form. Sin still exists in the world. Sickness and death and sadness and evil still exist in this world. Again, during this current age and for a period of time in the sovereign plan of God. But there's coming a day when the kingdom will take its full and final form. And and theologians refer to this as the consummation of the kingdom. This will be a reality in the age to come, where, where Christ will rule on His throne forever. Where there is no more death or sickness or pain. There's no sin or disobedience. There's no impurity. It will be the eternal kingdom of God. And this again, this nuance and this distinction distinction between the inaugurated kingdom and the consummated kingdom is vital to understanding the parable of the net this morning. In this parable, Jesus is describing for us this inaugurated kingdom, the, the, the kingdom that now exists in this current age. And in this inaugurated kingdom, sin and non-believers still remain in this world. And that's the picture that Jesus is illustrating this morning with this huge dragnet. Believers and non-believers together in the world during this current age. And in this current age, this time of grace and patience by God towards non-believers, the gospel call of the kingdom goes out to all people. So we learn here that just As the net gathers and captures fish of every kind, so we are to proclaim the truth of the gospel to people of every kind. We share the gospel with our children. We share the gospel to our our families. We we share the gospel at work. We share the gospel at school. We, We preach the gospel at church. We share the gospel to male and female, to old and young, to rich and poor, to neighbor and to stranger. We share the gospel in Lynchburg and in other cities and states and around the world. As believers, like the net in the parable, it's not our job to distinguish or, or differentiate between who we share with and we don't. But we share the truth with all people. We see this kind of truth being taught uh, in a way to the disciples in Acts chapter 1, 1. Um, there it, it records Jesus being with his disciples, and it's after his resurrection, but it's before he, he ascends back into heaven. And it, it says there, So when the disciples had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Like we discussed earlier, they're asking, is, is this the time you're going to bring out the consummated kingdom? Is, is this is your full and final eternal kingdom? And look at Jesus' response. He said, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So Jesus, that's not your concern. Your concern is to go and share what you have learned to the ends of the earth. We also learn here that the net gathers good and bad fish as it's dragged along the sea. So also, both believers and non-believers claim to be part of the kingdom in this current age. And we see this in the New Testament. We see this in the teaching of Jesus in uh, Matthew 7. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In John 6, it says that that Jesus had... um, many disciples that were were following him. And then it says, after this, many of disciples, not referring to the the 12, but to to others, turned back and no longer walked with him. So there were some who were claiming to follow Jesus, who listened to his teaching, who appeared to be among his disciples, but ultimately they turned away and no longer followed him. Thus they proved that they were never really true followers to begin with. Uh, Dr. Steve Lawson says this, Faith that fizzles have flaw from the first. And if you know anything about Dr. Lawson, that sounds just like something he would say. There's some good alliteration going on there. In 1 John, we read, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out. That it might become plain that they all are not of us. Nonbelievers professing to be believers for a time in the church. Both believers and nonbelievers being gathered in this age. And as I I thought about this, I started thinking, you know, why would this happen? Why, Why would, you start to ask yourself, why would somebody... Want to identify? Why would somebody want to be associated with the kingdom of heaven, but not truly believe? How does that happen? And so I, I thought through a few things. Um, one thing might be that of a, a familial or social expectation, right? It's just kind of a norm. Um, it's just, it's what you do. Mom taught me to go to church, so I go to church. Um, again, this, is, this can be a very prevalent issue in, um, in our context, the, the time and place in which we live here in, in the rural South in, in the U.S. Um, Christianity kind of been woven into the fabric of our society in, in so many ways. So um, people often claim to be Christians just because that's what you do. And again, we, we see this being much more prevalent in, in times and places where Christianity is accepted by society. Um, persecution has a way of minimizing the amount of false converts. Uh, Pastor Kerry mentioned this morning the, uh, the staff of the seminary being murdered there in Ukraine. My mom sent me an article yesterday, actually, yesterday morning from Open Doors, USA, Um, That said that they had recently been made aware of an incident in North Korea where security guards broke into a place uh, where several dozen Christians were gathered for a secret worship meeting. The guards arrested all of them and then executed every believer in the room. The article went on to say that the families of the North Korean believers will suffer as well. Our contact says that their families exceeding 100 people were also arrested and been sent to political prison where the inhumane conditions have been reported to be worse than those of the notorious Auschwitz concentration camp during World War II. Inmates are treated as animals, tortured, and forced to do harsh labor with little food. And then the author wrote this. Coming together to worship Jesus is a death warrant. And yet, as this report indicates, secret Christians are risking their lives to be part of a church or own a Bible. They're facing death to worship Jesus, knowing that their only hope is in him. That has a way of weeding out the the cultural Christians. But in our context, cultural Christianity is very much a real thing. Um, Another reason that somebody might claim to be a believer and yet not truly be is that it satisfies their conscience. It makes them feel better about themselves. Identifying with the kingdom in a a superficial or surface level way, it can have the effect of, of removing the feeling of someone's guilt, even though it doesn't actually remove the guilt. So, for example... Someone clearly sees and understands their sin, but yet they don't understand the truth of what Jesus has done for them. And so they know they've got to do something to get rid of this guilt. So they participate in and join in a church. They become very active. They sing in the choir. They keep the nursery. They carry meals to people. They work on church cleanup day, right? They do all of these things. And they're doing all these good things and helping so many people. And their conscience is soothed from the guilt that they know they have because of their sin. And and really, deep down, if this person is honest, they believe that by doing these things, they're atoning for their sin. And that it counteracts their sin. And so it alleviates their feeling of guilt because they believe now God's pleased with them because of what they've done. Or perhaps the person wants the benefits of the kingdom, right? They want this, the peace and the joy of a clear conscience like we just talked about. Or, or maybe they want to have a, a sense of belonging or, or fitting in, a, a place they can go, people they can rely on and surround themselves with. Or it could be that they want the benefit of going to heaven and not going to hell. It is very possible to not want to go to hell and yet not desire Jesus and not be truly born again. Now, I'm not saying that hell is in no way a motivating factor at all. We're going to see Jesus himself use the reality of hell in that way in a warning in just a minute in verse 50. But true saving faith is not merely this idea of not wanting to go to hell. It must be accompanied by a love of and a longing for Jesus. A desire to know Him, to adore Him, to cherish Him, to love Him, to worship Him, to serve Him. So maybe they want benefits of being part of the kingdom. The last reason that I thought of and I thought about this morning that that somebody might want to uh, identify with or claim to be a part of the kingdom um, is the most tragic and it's the most heartbreaking. And that is that some people are truly deceived. They're deceived. They honestly believe themselves to be saved, and they're not. We, we look back at Matthew 7. Jesus says that there are people who will come and say, will say to him, Lord, Lord. The, the repetition of that word gives emphasis. These people believe themselves to be saved and are declaring him Lord, and yet he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Satan has blinded their eyes, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4. In Revelation um, Chapter 12. There, the devil is called the deceiver of the whole world. In John 8, Jesus calls him the liar and the father of lies. It's just such an insidious and crafty, in this corrupt, diabolical way. It's just this subtle form of him taking and deceiving someone in this way. And the only way that this is overcome is through the true and faithful teaching of the riches of the gospel. The the Holy Spirit then uses to convict those who falsely believe themselves saved and to truly regenerate their hearts. And so we've got these reasons that we've seen. Someone might claim to be a part of the kingdom and yet are not. But there's coming a day when this will be over. When this age of grace and mercy will be done. And this brings us to our second main point this morning. When it will be time to separate out believers and, and non-believers, there'll be a time of judgment. And we see this in the parable. Look with me at verse 48. It says, When the net was full, men drew it ashore and sat down, and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. Well, that makes sense, right? The good news about fishing with these huge nets is that you can collect a lot of stuff in them really quickly. The downside is then after you've collected everything in it and pulled it onto the shore, then you actually have to sit down and sort through it. You've got to go through it. Not all the species of fish are good to eat. Not all the fish are the correct size to eat. Maybe some of them are diseased in some way. So you've got to go through them and get rid of those fish and sort through them and keep the ones that are good to eat. Keep the ones that or desirable, the ones you can sell. It's a necessary part of fishing in this way. And then Jesus begins to interpret this parable in verse 49. And he says, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. So there'll be a a judgment and a separation. This is, we read in Matthew 25. There Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say, To those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So we see this incredible glory described that awaits for those true believers. But you'll notice here in the parable in, uh, of the net in Matthew 13, something very interesting. That the fate of the good fish being collected into containers is not elaborated on by Jesus. He didn't go into any detail with them because it's not the focus of the parable. In verse 50, Jesus specifically focuses here on on the illustration of the bad fish. And he says there are the evil ones who will be thrown into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In a lot of ways, it's, it kind of makes a difficult week when you're preparing something like this and you're, you're, you're kind of, because of the text, you're, you're forced to meditate on and, and to think through the reality of hell. Uh, it's an awful, it's a terrifying description a fiery furnace the description of, of pain and agony is being likened to that of burning flesh the The unbelievable misery of a, of a flame directly exposed to your skin there will be weeping and wailing i don 't know if you've if you 've ever been in a position in life in a, in a really dark time when Um, you're so grieved, you're so overburdened, you're in such despair that you feel completely hopeless. No light at the end of the tunnel, just this gut-wrenching crying and weeping and emotional pain from the very depths of your soul. It'll be forever. Forever. And gnashing of teeth, a grinding and clenching of teeth in pain and agony and, and suffering. And there's no stopping it. There's no getting out of it. There's no chance of escape. It will be conscious, eternal torment forever in hell. Like I said, not a, not a fun thing to be confronted with but it's it's very necessary twice in this chapter jesus has talked about this very directly once in verses 40 through 42 earlier in the parable of the weeds and jesus said there just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire so will it be at the end of the age the son of man will send his angels And they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then again here in verse 50. This is Jesus in love as the great shepherd giving a direct warning. And so then the question is, how should we respond to this warning? For non-believers, this is meant to lead to repentance and faith. When we read in the New Testament, we see that Scripture describes God as one who is not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. It says that he does not rejoice or take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, but, would, but rather that they repent and turn to him and live. But he is a God of perfect justice, and therefore sin must be punished. And so then the call this morning is that you would recognize and understand the wretchedness and the vileness of your natural state, of my natural state. Knowing that we have disobeyed and infinitely offended a holy God. And there is nothing in us, there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves from His holy and just wrath. And because of His perfect love, in His great mercy and in His grace, God sent forth His Son to be born of a virgin, to live a life wholly obedient to His Father. No blemish, no sin, no disobedience. And the Son was betrayed. And He was wrongly accused and He was crucified. And in this, the Father considered the sin of the world as being the sins of His Son. And the Son died on that cross as payment for those sins. And in three days, the Son was gloriously resurrected to life. The tomb was empty. Sin and death were defeated. And He now lives. And now God calls you to come and to to realize and confess your sin to be Broken. Long to put an end to your disobedience to Him. To cry out to Him for forgiveness. And then place your faith and your trust in the work that Jesus did on that cross. Believe in Him. Trust in Him. Give your life to Him. And you can be saved from the wrath to come. And from the fiery furnace where there will be reaping and gnashing of teeth. And you can know the riches of the depths of joy and peace in a relationship with Jesus as Lord. For believers, this parable leads us to first examination. To look into the the, the deep, dark crevices of our own hearts? Are we truly born again? Do we genuinely seek Christ? Do we long for Him? Do we long to worship and to obey with everything in us? Or are we claiming to believe because of one of the reasons that we listed earlier? The the warning of Matthew 7 is clear. Not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Or to use the parable of the net, there are some who will say, Lord, Lord, and will not be good fish put into containers, but rather will be separated out and thrown into the fiery furnace. So as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, let us examine ourselves to see, if we are in the faith. I would urge you, don't take a passive, half-hearted approach to your sin or to your faith in Jesus, but rather passionately and wholeheartedly pursue obedience to Him. And secondly, it leads believers to proclamation. If we really, truly believe that what Jesus has said here is true, that those who do not, do not believe will be thrown into the fiery furnace where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. As Jesus said in other places, a place of outer darkness, a place where the worm does not die. A place where there's no escape, no relief, no pardon. If we know all this, how can we not make it known to those that we love? To those that we hold dear. To, to everyone, to all human beings. Michael White came and shared with us the current status of world missions. And, and as he did that, we learned that it's estimated that two people die every second. Without knowing Christ. And we'll spend an eternity in a godless hell. Every time we count one one thousand. It's two more. This responsibility to go and to share. What we have. Is exactly what Jesus tells the disciples here in verse 52. Of this chapter. Jesus says every scribe. Who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. Who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. The master of the house, the the head of the home would be responsible to give and to provide to others in the home what they needed. Out of the abundance of what he had. Same is true of those who know the truth of the kingdom. We're responsible To take what we have and to share the truth with the world around us. Jesus said in the Great Commission, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to to observe all that I have commanded you behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So as we see this and as we reflect on this this morning, may our hearts be broken. May we understand the incredible weight and responsibility of the Christian life. And may we take the truth that leads to eternal life to those who do not know. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we see in passages like this that the truth is not always easy to hear. But it is true. And Lord, I pray that we would this morning take this parable and the truth that Jesus taught in it. Lord, and we would examine ourselves. Father, and we would seek to pursue a relationship with Christ above all things. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: But then there's a separation that takes place as well. Few it shows. We live in an inclusive age. We want to be included in everything. And yet Jesus time and time again said, You're welcome to come. But if you don't, you're going to be Separated. No more beautiful day to come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ than this Palm Sunday. We're going to sing an invitation hymn, a beautiful hymn. And can it be that I should gain an entrance into the Savior's love? And the only way we can do that is through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, then the gospel has been. Uh, clearly and rightly proclaimed this morning. Jesus loves you. He desires for you to come to him. All that prohibits you from coming to him is you. Not him. Is you. And so as we sing this morning, we want you to make your way out of the pew. We can take you to a private prayer room with an open Bible, lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's up to you to repent of your sins, and call out to him. And yeah, Jesus will take you just as you are, but he's not going to leave you just as you are. The Lord may be leading you into the fellowship of this church. Perhaps you know the Lord is Savior. You need to follow him in believer's baptism. We encourage you to make that decision this morning as well. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper and one of the One of the understandings of the Lord's Supper is that it is to be celebrated by born-again, baptized believers because that confirms our obedience to Him As a child of God, to whom much is given, Jesus said, much is required. And so we have the beauty of the gospel. Much is required of us. 147, Brother Mike, Let's stand and sing this first, first uh, stanza of the great old hymn this morning. The Lord's spoken, won't you come?